Uh, Lord, thank you for the opportunity to uh, gather together, open your word tonight. Thank you for the truth that's there for us, and I trust that you'll be pleased in our time together here. Uh, Help us to understand the importance of this book and understanding it uh, properly. And um, we'll just ask your spirit to guide us through this. And uh, we'll give you the praise in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to start uh, uh, Genesis tonight. How many of you knew we were going to start Genesis tonight after my little email today? Okay, good. Should have known that. Huh? Well, yeah, but how you, you knew when I said beginning. You, you knew that, right. That was, And I even put it in quotes for you, so help you out there a little bit. So um, one of the first steamboats uh, that, was, that was manufactured took 32 hours to travel from New York to Albany, New York, up the river. So that's not that far. So that was, I mean, they thought that was pretty awesome back then, but that was a long time for a steamboat to go. How many of you know how, it's about, it was about 150 miles, I think. How many of you know how long the first airplane flight took that for Orville and Wilbur Wright, how long that lasted when they flew in their plane? Was, it was 12 seconds. 12 seconds, and it was like 200 feet, and they were like, whoa, we flew, you know, which that was that was a big deal for them um, at that time. The first automobiles that were manufactured traveled at 2 to 4 miles per hour, and they broke down often. They looked very similar to, to uh, wagons uh, at the time that were created and there were times when people would be in them and they'd break down and people would go by and horses and wagons and they'd say, get a horse, you know, because they, you know, they thought that they were kind of goofy doing that when they could have just gotten a horse and moved a lot quicker. So those were, we know now, looking back over 100 years, um, that those were very humble beginnings for those inventions. But now look where we've come with ships and aircraft and automobiles you know we've we've come a great distance when we talk about beginnings if you got that email today when we talk about beginnings in the book of genesis there is nothing humble about the beginnings of god's creation although some want to take creation and turn it into humble beginnings by saying that there was just some amoebas created and then all of a sudden everything evolved out of that. But that's not the case, as you'll see here tonight as we dig into this book. There's nothing humble about the beginnings of this world uh, that God created. Probably nowhere else in Scripture, um, except for the redemption of humanity, is the magnificence and power and grandeur of God more clearly seen than in His sovereign uh, creative power uh, in this world. The question always that gets debated is, how did he do it? How long did it take? And those are some of the questions that we want to answer as we go through these first few chapters here um, in the book of Genesis. So we're going to see the beginning of the world tonight. Um, we will uh, proceed a little bit deeper into this. We're, we're not going as far tonight just because whenever we start a book, we want to cover a lot of the uh, history foundation of the book so that we have a good you know, base before we start into it, because everything we take out of that will be based on that foundation that we create. So, I want you to remember that as we go through um, chapter 1, chapter 2, that these are not just theological truths. 
that we're looking at. There are also scientific truths that God gives us that um, we sometimes confuse as we observe the world uh, as human beings. Um, God is seen here as the founder and the creator of all life that we can see, all of the universe that we can observe. So we, we can see the theocracy of Israel founded on the sovereignty of the God of creation. We see that in the book of Genesis. Their laws, their beliefs, all point to who God is. Who is God that we see here? God is the one who created everything. He controls everything. So when we talk about the sovereignty of God, uh, that's what we're talking about. Sovereign means God is authority over all creation. When we talk about his sovereignty, is he is in control of all of his creation. He didn't create something that is out of control, some Frankenstein universe that is crazy out of control, and he can't manage that. He is in control of even the things that we observe as being bad. We, di- we can't see the big picture. God is still sovereign over all of those things. Um, so when we talk about the forces of nature, which we see very prevalently in our society today, we talk about hurricanes and typhoons and tornadoes and snowstorms and blizzards and all those types of things. God is sovereign even over the forces of nature. God is sovereign over uh, enemies of the church, enemies of the nation of Israel. God is sovereign over uh, pagan deities that the world creates, that mankind creates. God is sovereign over those false belief systems that man has created. Nothing can harm uh, or do injustice to the church or to Israel outside of God's sovereign control. It's very important that we remember these things or we can, we can very quickly lose um, touch with who God really is. Um, <clears throat> uh, creation is the basis of law, of all law, of God's law naturally, of man's law, of what is put inside of us as far as the fact that we can innately know the difference of right and wrong. We know that in our minds because of what God has placed in us through creation. That's why no matter what society is in the world, that's why no no matter what religion they believe, they all have similar laws about murder and stealing and kidnapping and rape and those types of things because of what God has placed inside of us Um, at creation. So if God created all things, why is it that man creates other gods, other deities to compete with him? Um, Well, we'll talk about that as we go go throughout uh, the book of Genesis. We see uh, the redeeming aspects of God's creation uh, through here. He was able, as we'll look at tonight, he was able to bring order out of chaos. He brought light from darkness He moved the universe from disorder and darkness to what is holy and light. The same God that made light to shine out of darkness is also the same God today that makes light to shine out of the dark hearts of new believers as we put our faith in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, we often quote that 
is that we are new creations. You know, anyone that's in Christ is a new creation uh, that God has made. And uh, that all finds its foundation in the book of Genesis. So the book of Genesis and the proper understanding of the book of Genesis forms a foundation of everything uh, that we believe. And that's why it's so critical that we understand this book properly. And we'll talk about that more as we go through it. So with that brief overview, let's begin with the first fact here, is that, and that is this, that God created everything out of nothing. God created everything out of nothing. So in the beginning, the Bible begins with, that's where I always like to say that, you know, that's where we see that God's favorite sport is baseball. And how appropriate is it that we're talking about this on the day when the seventh game of the World Series is being played tonight, even as we're speaking here. In the beginning, I like to joke about that, that God's favorite sport is baseball. But we know that in the beginning uh, takes us back to the beginning of time. The beginning of time as we know it, since God, our God, is eternal. This is the account of our world's genesis. And that is the meaning of the word genesis, means beginning. So you could say this just as well in the genesis. In the beginning of the world, in the Genesis. Now, here's some foundational facts. Number one, the Hebrew title of Genesis comes from the the Hebrew word Bereshith, um, which simply means in the beginning. The English word that we use, Genesis, comes from the Septuagint, the the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, The Greek word here is Genesias. Um, which basically means the beginnings or the generations. This is the history that we're being given. The first section of the book focuses on the beginning of many things that form a foundation of our belief system. Um, it, it talks about the beginning of the world, the beginning of man. Um, it talks about the beginning of sin, um, and it culminates in the global flood after uh, only a 1,000 to uh, 1,500 years. And we'll talk a little bit as we go through here about dispensationalism and the first few dispensations that happened very quickly here in the book of Genesis, the age of innocence and, and so forth. And we'll talk about those as we cross those thresholds um, and move forward in God's economies, God's programs of responsibilities that he places on mankind, man's failure, uh, destruction, and then new programs that follow. We'll talk about that those as we go through here. The second part of the book of uh, Genesis uh, deals with Abraham and the people of Israel. Through Abraham, God promises salvation. And blessing, not just to his descendants, but to the entire world. Of course, that's through the Messiah, who's promised in chapter 3 at the fall. We'll talk about that. Who's the author of the book of Moses? Do you remember? Oh, jeez, I just gave you the answer. The book of Genesis. It's Moses. And who better, really? Who's more qualified to write uh, the history of the world that predates man than Moses, who the Bible tells us was learned in all the ways of the Egyptians. I put Acts 7.22 where Paul or uh, Luke tells us that. And Moses also spoke with God face to face. 
So Moses is the author of this this book here. Um, let's let's start in verse one then with the creation, the creation that is the work of God. Creation is a work of God in verse one. It says in the beginning, um, and since God is eternal and God has no beginning, this. Uh, is to be understood as the beginning of matter as we know it. So the beginning of everything that we can see, feel, touch, smell, um, our universe. In the beginning, God. It's very important that we understand who God is here. God, the word for God, in the Hebrew, is a plural term. This is not a singular term in the Hebrew. It refers to three or more. So in the English, we've got singular, we've got plural, which refers to two or more. In the Hebrews, you've got singular, you've got dual, and then you've got three or more. The tense of this word, uh, this this noun uh, for God, is three or more is what we're given here. So God is plural, and it points to the fact that the entire Godhead was active in creation. So we see uh, the word God that's used here. I want to point to a couple of other verses where it talks about different persons of the Godhead in relation to creation. So the one you're very familiar with here in John chapter 1, I'll just read that for you. John chapter 1 that says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So who's the Word there that you know from the study of John? It's it's Jesus, okay? That's made clear later. He, the Word, He was in the beginning and with God. So if we're talking about Jesus, verse 3 says, All things were made through Him, and without Him, Nothing was made that was made. So, who was present at creation? Christ was. And he was very active in that creation. So we know that the Son, the second person of the Trinity, was present in the beginning. He was there and part of that process. So we see the Son there. Then you go back to Genesis, and I'm going to skip down into verse 2, the second part of verse 2, that says, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So you've got God, just generally, the three in one. Uh, We know the Father's included in that. You've got Jesus mentioned specifically in John 1, verse 3. And now you've got the Spirit mentioned right here in verse verse 2. So there you have the Trinity involved in creation in the beginning. All three persons of the Godhead are present on that very first moment of time, our time. Not God's time, he has no time. But our time, all three persons of the Godhead were present there. In the beginning, God, and what did God do? That uh, three-person Godhead, uh, they created. They created. Although this word... Uh, can refer to creating something out of nothing. It can refer to that. It's not limited to that. But the context here and other passages indicate 
that this creation that God was um, referring to was a creation accomplished without pre-existing materials. So God was able to not, he didn't have to go to Menards and buy, you know, some stuff for a world and then make a world. He had nothing and made something. Now, the most creative human on the planet can't make something out of nothing. You have to have something to make something. You can't make something out of nothing. And what we got have God doing here is making something, a lot of things, out of out of nothing. Um, Acts chapter uh, seventeen. Um, Acts chapter seventeen, verse twenty-four. Luke says, "God, who made the world and everything in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth." does not dwell in temples made with hands. That's because he made everything. This is his temple. The world is God's uh, abode. This is all his creation, all his idea. So the word created uh, stresses that what was formed was new and it was perfect at his original creation. And the word created here is used uh, several places throughout the Bible and it's only God that it's used in relation to. When it talks about man creating something, it's a different word. But when it talks about a good, perfect creation, it's God's creation. Only he can do that. Man can't do that. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so the heavens there doesn't relate to God's abode. You know, we talk about there being three three heavens that the Bible talks about. We talk about our atmosphere. Uh, we talk about the starry heavens, the, the uh, planets and the world beyond our uh, space. And then we talk about the abode of God, the throne room of God, His abode. Um, this is referring to the creation. All of God's creation, all that we can see with the naked eye or with the most powerful telescopes or with the most powerful microscopes to see the smallest of God's creation, all are the handiwork of God from nothing. Now, I don't know if that strikes you as unbelievable, but that's unbelievable. I mean, that's magnificent when you think about it, what God was able to do with nothing. Somebody talked to me today about someone that said they had trouble talking to a person that uh, they talked to me about maybe having an opportunity to speak to this person that was an atheist. And like, what would you say to this person if they, when they meet you and they find out uh, you're a Christian, one of the first things they say is, I'm an atheist. They, they just want to set up that barrier right away. I said, well, my initial response to that, if somebody came up to me and said, I'm an atheist, I'd be said, that's pretty impressive. I'm really impressed with that. And their response is going to be, well, why are you impressed that I'm an atheist? I said, you are a person of great faith. You have way more faith than I do. How can you look at this world and this universe and believe that it just happened? That takes a lot of faith. There is so much order in our creation, so much order in our world, it begs a creator. It begs a creator. How can you say there's an accident? that's out there, wow, I'm impressed. You're a person of great faith. But, uh, and it really is. This world is magnificent. 
when you look at the creation around us. And then what God has allowed us, human beings, to be able to create in the midst of that is even more amazing when we see the creative ability of people and what they can dream up and what they can think of. And we know that God places those gifts and those talents in them. Magnificent that we can do that. Not one other part of God's creation can be creative like we can be. Only human beings can be creative. The rest of God's creation, nature, what do they follow? They follow their instincts. That's all they do. They do some cool stuff, but it's all instinctual to them. It's not anything that they're sitting in a planning room and, hey, what do you guys think we should do next? They don't do that. They just go out and do their ant thing or they do their bear thing or they do whatever those animals are going to do. But creation is all a work of God. It's not a work of accident or or um, uh, just happenstance. Now, that there's still a difference now between a creationist, a strict creationist, and one who believes in intelligent design. And we're going to talk about that difference here now because um, what the difference is is a, a strict creationist believes in a six-literal-day creation, whereas one that believes in intelligent design believes that God started the process and then it evolved over millions and billions of years to be what it is today. So let's talk about that difference and why that is and um, why there are some that believe that. So if we go to verse 2, it says that the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep. So the earth would refer to um, the, the land mass that is earth of what we know to be as earth. Uh, the deep would refer to the water mass, which is, I don't, I don't know the exact, where they say one quarter, three quarters, something like that, water to, to land mass. But without form and void, that phrase, without form and void, means as of yet unshaped and without creature. As of yet unshaped and without creature. So that means there's no animals yet on that earth. There's no living things there yet. It's just a blob of landmass, just a blob of what's earthy, and there's water. That's it. There's nothing living in or on any of that yet. So that was the condition of the world when God started the detail work of creation. So this was the very first physical manifestation of what we know as the heavens and the earth. Now soon, as we go down through here, it will take detailed shape. But the initial form was chaotic in the sense that there was nothing there. And it wasn't like we see it today, like we see the world today. But it wasn't chaotic in the sense that it was out of control. God, once again, is sovereign. He's fully in control. It'd be like if I could use the crude illustration of, of have you ever watched a potter work? What does a potter do? He's got his wheel spinning there in front of him. It's just like going around the wheel. And what's he do? He takes a chunk of clay, whatever he's going to make, and once he, he flops it on plops it on the wheel, and it's just spinning there. And it's just a chunk of clay spinning there until he chooses 
to get his hands in there and start making shape and form out of that. It's kind of like that with the creation. Is there's God put the landmass there, he put everything there, and then he started to work it and form it over the next six days. And you'll see him bring life and and form and everything into that into that creation. Now, here's the rub. Here's here's the problem and this is where we get into trouble as the church. It's here that some have began uh, have begun to struggle with the age of the world because um, the the earth is without form and void. Uh, what does that mean? Um, some might believe that that Satan fell um, sometime before this and the world went into chaos. That God had started the creation and the because of the fall, um, the world went into a, a chaotic. Um, mode and that um, that theory was popularized in the late 1800s, early 1900s in the church because of Darwinism, and because Darwinism came out with evolution, the theory of evolution, and with great confidence and great support of the scientific world and the media proved that the world was millions and billions of years old and all these creatures uh, had evolved and so the church uh, started to waver in their belief of creationism and they said well science can't be wrong they're never wrong so since they're right about the age of the earth then we have to do something to make sure that our belief system fits into that so what was their major mistake that they made giving science more credibility than the Word of God. That was their major mistake that they made. So they tried to fit in that uh, an old age theory, uh, old earth-aged theory, and so they put what's called the gap theory in there. So there's a creation, there's the fall of Satan, there's a corruption, and now what God's revealing to us is the earth being uh, formless and without void, or formless and void, uh, without life there. Um, the question then becomes, did, did Satan's fall occur prior to this time, creating this chaos? Um, I don't believe it did. I think God's creation by decree in verse 3 actually uh, corrects the problem that's there. Um they would say that the creation that we have here that we're seeing is not the original creation. I think it still is. And uh, I think we need to um, trust the, what we are given in the Scriptures more than what we're given from the scientific community in, in some of these arenas, especially when these scientists aren't, aren't believers. There's many, many good, highly qualified scientists that are believers that... Um, give good scientific support to creationism and it would behoove us to listen to them more than to listen to the world and never try to make the scriptures fit scientific theory. Um, I've always said, if there's anything that contradicts the scriptures, it's always wrong. The scriptures are never wrong. We cling to what the Bible teaches and we don't push it aside for something that's been proven uh, when in reality... Um, their proofs aren't quite as reliable as, as they want us to believe them to be. 
But um, even if uh, you as a Christian believe in an old earth and a, a more of a um, uh, intelligent design view, you still can't deny the power of God in creation. Um, but I don't believe you can defend an old earth theory from the scriptures, old earth theory from the scriptures. I think that uh, we, we live on a very young earth. I think it's uh, six, six to 8,000 years old, and eight would even be a stretch. And um, I think that will become clear as we go down through here a little bit, a little bit more. When you see how God spoke of His His creation, this is not a recreation. This is the original uh, creation that we're given here. So the earth was without form and void; darkness was on the face of the deep. And then verse two, the next part of the verse says, "And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters." So it was by the Spirit of God that everything was created. The sun was very involved as well, as we know. We saw that in John 1. Um, and I, I don't see any reason why both verses 1 and 2 uh, can't be part of the first day. I think that they're both part of the first day, that this happened very uh, quickly, at least part of that first 24-hour period, um, where God created everything uh, as far as land, mass, and sea and then began to give them shape by adding life forms later. So I don't believe when this original creation contained life forms, sea forms, uh, amoebas, atoms, that type of thing. I think that that all came later, and you'll see that here in just a minute. So God created everything out of nothing. Um, secondly here, God created light out of darkness, and this is really the, uh, the culmination of day one. Um, and I, before we do this, I want to give you kind of a five-point pattern of creation, of the revelation of creation here by God. So there's these five points that you'll see in each day. So uh, the first one is the creative word is decreed. The creative word is decreed. So when we see uh, the creative word here under day one, God says, let there be light. That's his creative word that he decrees. Secondly, there's the report of its effect. There's a report of its effect. Verse 3, and there was light. <coughs> so God said, let there be light, and there was light. So when God speaks, creation listens. There's no questions, there's no arguments. Uh, the third aspect of uh, creation's pattern, God's evaluation is that it was good, that it was good. We generally see that. God likes what he does. And sometimes he names it, as we see in verse 5, God called the light day. So there was no day before, but now he says, I'm going to call the light day and I'm going to call the darkness night. That's in verse 5. And then uh, the last is the numbering of each day. There's the first day. It seems pretty simple when, you're, um, when you believe in a proper hermeneutic of Scripture. Why would you say a day doesn't mean a day if Moses wrote a day? Why would you say that it means something else? No place else in Scripture... Um, does a day mean more than a day, except when you talk about the day of the Lord, which is talk? And there's that's not a set time frame. It's the day of the Lord, which begins at the rapture and goes through to the second coming. Um, but anyway, 
Let's uh, move on here and talk about God's first creative word. We've already mentioned it here briefly. Um, that God said, let there be light, and there was light. So this light was more of a natural, physical light that replaced the darkness that was over the earth at the time. Darkness hovering over the face of the deep. In the Bible, light and darkness represent good and evil. Light is good, dark is evil. So it's good that light was now part of God's creation, especially when one considers the source of this light. I want you to know, too, that in in eternity future, there's no darkness. There's no night there, we're told. There's no night there. There's no darkness. There's no evil, no wickedness, no sin. So since the sun was not yet created on day one, what is the source of this light? Do you think? It's God, right? It's God probably in the person of the sun even because we know Jesus is what? He is the light of the world. So it's very possible this is the revelation of the sun even into God's creation that this light is now uh, present um, in, in God's creation here. So God is obviously the source of the light. God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. So the division of light and darkness indicates that the world now is already spinning on its axis, and the source of the light's coming from a direction. Wherever God wanted that light to come from, uh, it's coming from that <coughs> that direction and uh, there's a separation of the light and the darkness a separation of the light and the darkness God divided it the light and the darkness so there's a, a, a distinction between the two God called the light day and <clears throat> he called the darkness night so the naming of this created phenomenon indicated that God was going to have dominion over his creation. So he sets the name, or excuse me, he sets the pattern of dominion over creation by naming rights. I want you to notice that. So God is naming the universe. He's naming items like the light and the dark. And so that gives him sovereign dominion over his creation. There's a difference, though, when it gets to man where he gives man naming rights over something. What's he give man naming rights over? Animals. Over animals. Over the creation. He gives, he gives man the naming rights, and then he places man in dominion over his creation. So we're in charge of the natural life that's on this planet. And God says, you're in charge of it, you go ahead and name it. You have that dominion. Uh, in in families, who has the naming rights of children? The parents. And who has dominion over that child? The parents do. So naming rights uh, give you a certain uh, dominion or authority over what you're naming. And in creation, we see God claiming dominion, sovereignty over His creation by naming this creation that he is that he is uh, putting out there. So, uh, 
uh, going on in verse 5, the second part of that verse, so the evening and the morning were the first day. So there's a question about the day. I've already referred to that. Some some say it refers to geological ages prior to man even being on the earth. You know, if you've studied geology at all, you know, you've, you've studied the geologic column and they'll talk about, you know, how many millennium or how many millions of years this column was or this this layer or this layer. And those of you that know anything about the flood know that those layers can be laid out very quickly, can't they? And that's demonstrated very clearly when you go to the Creation Museum and you go to uh, the Ark now, that they demonstrate that and show how that those layers can be laid out very quickly. And fossils don't take millions of years to form. Fossils can be formed very, very quickly um, when they're buried um, uh, in those, those layers. Some say it refers to 24-hour periods where God revealed his creative acts through 24-hour periods. So, so like, um, what that means is, so there was a day when God revealed to Moses what he did the first day. So when Moses says that was morning, there was evening, that's what God told him for that day. So that was Moses' description of how he got the, the message from God about creation, that it didn't actually happen in a day, but he was told about it in a day. Okay, so that's another theory. How do you like that one? Okay, I, don't, I don't either. Uh, the third is that it's a literal 24-hour day of divine activity. And divine, I think, is the, uh, the uh, magic word here. Um, it shouldn't make sense to us. If it makes sense to us, then that makes us God. You see, it, it doesn't make sense to us because we're part of God's creation. The fact that He could do these amazing things is because is because He's God. Um, whenever the Hebrew word for day that is used here, this, this word for day, has a numerical adjective, it always refers to a 24-hour period in the Old Testament. So when you see this word for day in the Old Testament, it has a numerical adjective. It always refers to a 24-hour day period. Um, also, I want to I look at this word's use over in the book of Exodus when we're talking about the Ten Commandments. And in Exodus chapter 11, um, you see it there. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth the sea and all that is in them, and he rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he hallowed it. So all those days there refer to a 24-hour period. And it makes perfect sense in Exodus 20.11. We don't question it there. Why don't we question it there? But yet we question it when we look at the book of, of um, Exodus, or excuse me, Genesis chapter 1. So, um, that's all we're going to do tonight. I will talk about the rest of the days next week, but I wanted to give you a background for that. So God created everything out of nothing. Uh, he specifically began by creating light out of darkness or separating the light from darkness, His light. And so I want to an- answer these questions. Is Why is it so important that um, we have a consistent hermeneutic or understanding of the Scriptures in Genesis 1-11? through 11? Because that's really where it's questioned. A lot of people will be consistent from Genesis 12 all the way to the book of Revelation, but they struggle with the book of Revelation and they struggle with the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Why do they do that? Why do they change their hermeneutic in that process? A consistent hermeneutic 
is necessary to understand the Word of God. How do you how do you trust the gospel if you can't trust Genesis one through eleven? How do you? When it said Jesus died and was buried for three days and rose again from the dead, how do we know that? How do we know that's literal? How do we don't? How do we know that's not metaphorical in some sense, or what that really refers to? Um, you see, if you if you if you can't be literal in Genesis one, then what makes you literal in John twenty? When you're talking about those things, you see, whenever you throw out your literal interpretation, then everything is up for grabs. You can change anything to be anything you want it to be. Then you're in a lot of trouble because then there's no truth anywhere. There's no source of truth anywhere. Number two, I believe that our enemy uses science to lead many people away from God. I believe our enemy uses science to, to lead many away from God. Again, there, there are many, um, many good Christian scientists that teach a different science than what we hear from secularists and their teachings. Thirdly here, I think we can be a real testimony to the world through these truths and our belief in these truths, standing up for what's true. Um, Christian educators, Christian kids teaching the truth in, in, uh, as they have opportunity in their classrooms or witnessing in their schools, um, uh, presenting different scientific interpretations of the world and creation. We have a lot in our church library if you want to look at some of those. Go to the Creation Museum, uh, go to the Ark and see... Um, what uh, creation or what the uh, answers in Genesis uh, has presented there, what the Lord has allowed them to build there, it's it's really amazing, and it will build your faith. It will strengthen your faith in these areas rather than um, denigrating it, which will, is what the enemy wants to do. He wants to cut away at your biblical foundation, and if he can do that in Genesis one to eleven then he will cut away your faith in other places as well. And that's why I think it's really critical that we have a biblical understanding um, of, of creation. And because the foundation is, is key. Um, and if we have a bad foundation, we're going to struggle with understanding God's Word and applying it. Um, I heard uh, several years ago on uh, Focus on the Family, they talked about the number of professing born-again Christians and even the number of, of active Catholics, how many, it was a large percentage, that struggled with the concept of absolute truth. And I think a big part of that is because they've had their faith eroded um, in their educational process on universities or even in schools where they've eroded their faith through a destruction of what the Bible teaches about, about creation. Um, I believe that Genesis is a wonderful account of God's power and majesty. We don't want to cheapen it at all by trying to make it understandable or have it fit our, our worldview, but rather have our worldview adjusted to what God's worldview um, is. So, Zinni, uh, with that, I know that was kind of a quick overview of some of those uh, pretty critical principles. Does anybody have any, any questions uh, on that? Yeah, Pam. Foundation. You know, if, if Satan can 